Good morning. Welcome, welcome. We are glad that we have decided to connect today on Communion Sabbath. We as a community of faith are celebrating our first communion of the year. And communion ultimately is, I think, the church's sacrament. And by sacrament, I simply mean a practice, a visible sign of that invisible grace, as Augustine would put it, that God has bestowed upon us. And in communion, what we actually acknowledge is that God is supreme, that Jesus' body and blood have enacted a new order of things, and in, and in and through him, all things are made anew. So we're excited because there are some connections. Obviously, if you've read the lesson with that and the premise that the lesson uh, makes about a God who reigns, uh, we're going to talk about that, Joey and I, but before we do that, we're going to invite you to pray. Jesus, thank you for being Savior and Sovereign. And we just pray that as we bask in the reality that is your salvation, uh, we continue remembering that it is only in and through you. So forgive, Lord, our attempts at minimizing what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do by trying to focus on what we are doing. Let us always, always allow for the realization that you are enough, for you are sovereign. We pray in your name. Amen. Mm. Joey, welcome. How are you this, this Sabbath? A year starting to kind of pick up now we're we're in the full a full rhythm i think of of the new year holidays are left behind and here we are yeah yeah it it always takes me about a month mm. for me to realize that we are now in a completely new year writing 2024 on my checks or putting that on the dates it's always i have to remember okay it's not 2023 anymore it's 2024 mm. it takes a little while to get in that rhythm but yeah, yeah starting to get there that is a really, really embarrassing, embarrassing, embarrassing confession, Joe. <laughs> Not the fact that you get the date, the year wrong, but the fact that you still write checks. Come on, man, it's 2024. <laughs> who writes checks? Unfortunately, <laughs> I have a few vendors who only take checks. Okay. So. <laughs> okay. Well, to you vendors who are 150 years old, we thank you. We uh, Joey supports you still. <laughs> Uh, the rest of us civilized world, join us in the digital age. I will say my checks still have an address from like two houses ago because, okay. Okay. because you don't use them you very don't. often. You don't right? And I don't want to buy new checks. Absolutely so. <laughs> not. I, I, I don't even know what a check looks like. And, um, I, I was just thinking about that. It's interesting that you mentioned uh, just this past week. Somebody at the grocery store, lovely, lovely uh, elderly gentleman, was paying with a check, and uh, it was so exasperating. <laughs> Just because it takes forever, you have to write down the amount and the store, and and then I I said, well, maybe maybe that's a problem. Maybe we should bring checks back, if only to introduce kind of this state of pause mm. and slowing down into our life. Maybe. Maybe yeah. writing checks is, is a kind of spiritual exercise that, yeah. that we should engage in. Yeah. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just throwing that out there. Yeah, no, it's a combating hurry with the writing of checks. Mm -hmm. right? Oh, that sounds like a... So you don't have to, you don't do the Apple Pay immediately from your Apple Watch right. or from your phone or whatever. Right. You actually, you know what that would do? It would make us think a little bit more about what we're spending. And how we're spending it, yes. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. See, I, I think that is so true. Because I don't even I don't know about you. Um, and I know we're getting kind of sidetracked <laughs> here. But, I mean, come on. It, when's the last time you heard a conversation on checks? Um, I don't even carry a wallet anymore. Mm. It's all on my phone. Yeah. I, and I, even the inputting of a pin now, it, yeah. it's... It, it, it annoys me. Yeah. I'm so accustomed now to just wow. scanning and moving through. And I think that's that's just a reality of the world mm. we live in, right? It's a world of scan and go through. And while that is very convenient in some areas, I think you're right. I think I think it it doesn't provide as many spaces to consciously combat hurry. Yeah. 
Yeah, and there, and there's all that research out there that shows that when people pay by credit card or by Apple Pay or whatever, they spend more mm-hmm. than when they have to actually pull out cash mm-hmm. or write a check, because then you're writing, oh. I spent sixty-eight dollars and fifty-three cents here instead of just scanning it right. and moving it on. Yeah. So you're so not only are you slowing down, but you're also connecting mm. with with how your resources are being spent. Yeah, I'm sure there is a spiritual lesson in there somewhere. <laughs> um, I'm not sure how we're gonna transition over because, as you know, the title of this lesson is uh, "God Reigns." Mm-hmm. And it's an interesting title um, because I think, and we've we've talked about this a lot, right? That life itself, um, one can take two particular tracks to it. Uh, Robert Alter, who's a Old Testament scholar who who writes on on Psalms, says that for some of us, uh, Psalms becomes this irrelevant book. Mm. Uh, we're much more comfortable in the arena of Proverbs. Mm. You know how Proverbs functions, right? Yeah. Uh, you do A, you get B. You do B, you get C. Um, and he, Alter makes a point that for those of us for whom life is clear and we can actually see very clearly um, that God is reigning, that God is in control, that God is in charge, then Proverbs is much, much easier uh, to write and to read and to actually apply to our life hmm. says that psalms becomes becomes really difficult and hmm. so alter notices that the psalms that simply say god is good god is in charge uh let's collect uh the offering and we'll see you next week those are are actually in the minority of the corpus of the of, of the psalms mm-hmm. uh the majority of the psalms uh, as he says are connected to the human experience and as such uh, the point or the purpose isn't to testify that God is in control it is actually to ask the question how do we continue believing that God is in control Mm. in spite of all the other evidence uh, in spite of all this other evidence and so I thought that that was a really interesting take uh, because it forces this kind of to actually pay attention to the things that we're reading. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, yeah, it, it does seem like those psalms are in the minority, this, the hymns of praise, mm-hmm. um, the ones that don't, do not introduce any kind of unsurety about about God's sovereignty or the, the psalms that don't express some kind of grief or loss or anger or uh, frustration. Those psalms are actually the majority. Mm-hmm. They're the psalms of lament, the psalms of mourning. All those psalms, there's more of those than there are of the psalms of praise. Mm-hmm. So that's a fascinating take. That by that balance, um, there's a that the book of Psalms as a whole is communicating that that the, this these these expressions of trust are not just expressions of confidence in God, they're also asking the question, how do we continue to believe this in the midst of all the suffering? Correct, because I think life itself, right, if whether you're uh, an Israelite living 3,500 years ago or you're living here in Southern California or wherever you're watching, um, life itself seems to constantly, constantly force us to question our basic definitions Mm. on how the world is supposed to operate. And so, for example, uh, for Proverbs, the the conception of justice, for for example, in Mm -hmm. Proverbs is really, really easy to to kind of uh, pick out and then to share. Mm. And you can simply... uh, get the whole context of the book and summarize it with a really simple phrase uh, to each according to what he she or he does Mm -hmm. that's the basic hypothesis that proverbs is doing uh, is making but psalms works differently Mm -hmm. because there's a lot of times where the promises of god and by de facto the reign of god seems to be imperiled by uh, the experiences that the family of God has to go through on a on a daily basis. So in a way, even though the Proverbs seem to be a lot more practical than the Psalms, the Psalms are more realistic 
mm. than the Proverbs, right? Like one of my frustration with Proverbs is that things seem so black and white mm -hmm. in the book of Proverbs. Like you do this and this will happen. Mm -hmm. Do this and this will happen. And, you know, of course, as we interpret the book of Proverbs, we, there's an understanding like these are general truths. They're not applicable in every right. situation. But that has been some of my challenge with the book of Proverbs is because everything seems so black mm -hmm. and white. Where the, whereas in the Psalms, there's a lot of gray and there's a lot, there's room for emotions and anger and frustration and all the other things that we've talked about as well. What, why then is it that Yahweh, I think, if, if you're trying to pick out the protagonists of both books, I think Yahweh is much more palpable throughout Psalms. Mm. It seems like Proverbs is about what I do and mm. then what I get. So in yeah. a sense, Proverbs, the primary protagonist is uh, the person who is hearing the communal advice uh, and Israel's wisdom. And it is her or his responsibility then to put that advice into practice. Yeah. In Psalms, mm. it seems like the protagonist isn't uh, as much uh, the singer uh, or, the, or the one who is actually praying these Psalms, but the protagonist continues to be, to be Yahweh. Uh, and I think it's because when a life ceases to make sense, hmm. God becomes an indispensable necessity. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I, I just flipped to a random Proverbs, Proverbs 15, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Mm -hmm. We know in general this principle is true, right? When somebody comes up and they're angry with you, if we respond with anger back, it just mm -hmm. pours oil on the fire, makes mm -hmm. it even hotter. So a gentle answer has the ability to calm things down but it doesn't always calm things right. down <laughs> right there are sometimes the man the person that's coming at you is so angry that no answer mm -hmm. that you give will calm them down so um yeah so the proverbs seems a lot more transactional even when in the proverbs that talk about the importance in trusting in god and wisdom coming from god it's still framed in almost transactional terms that that if you do this, then God will give you a blessed life, right? And yet then you have a, a story like Job, where Job seems to have followed all the Proverbs and done everything right, and yet he's still fallen on hard times, right? And in those kind of cases, it seems like the book of Psalms would resonate so much more deeply with him mm -hmm. than the book of Proverbs, because the Proverbs, he would read through them and said, yeah, I've done that, I've done that, I've done that, I've done that, and life right. hasn't turned out and it's right. it's not working, yeah. absolutely. Um, which then begs, I think, the question, um, if Psalms is about capturing the totality of human experience, then is that totality and by to of human experience, does it all have a place to play? in mm. our worship and in our praise yeah. and how does our because our worship and our praise has to do with the fact that god is in control yeah how does the totality of human experience relate to this faith confession that yes god is in control mm. wow so much to unpack there one piece that i'd like to talk about and then i'll go to the second is that when you say when you said that this is supposed to encapsulate the totality of our worship experience and our praise experience it just brought up to my mind the fact that we sort of have an unbalanced corporate worship mm -hmm. if you look at the psalms because right. many of these psalms were used in corporate worship right and it does seem that we don't do enough lamenting mm. in our worship service mm. Or any lamenting, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, once in a while we do. We have, well, at least at our church, we have the Memorial Sabbath where we take time to lament. There are other times of the year. But the majority of the Psalms are lamenting, right? I mean, more than half are have to do with lament. And so does that mean that we need to bring more balance to our mm -hmm. co corporate worship? On the other hand, that does seem like a little bit of a downer that if more than half of our corporate worships were focused on lamenting, 
I don't know, maybe I'm not used to it. Maybe maybe it would be something that would be exhilarating and match our human experience better because a lot of human life is suffering, right? Or maybe we're just not in touch with the suffering that we're going. I, I don't know why, why that seems so alien to me, but that did come up into my mind. Like, are we imbalanced when it comes to our corporate worship? The, the, other, the other thing that you brought up as far as the Psalms, um, that how does, um, how, I think you were saying, how does our praise and that, that expression of trust in God, how does that play into the Psalms? I do think that even when we're going through difficult times, but definitely during times when we're going through good times, it is important for us to express that trust in God. I do think there's an important part of our human experience that it can't always be lament, 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 mm-hmm. lament. And even within the laments, there are express like we saw last week, there are expressions of praise. We need that as a even when we don't even when we don't fully believe it or feel it, it's important to express it. Um, during the unbelievable series, I, I don't remember which speaker it was. Um, I think it was Ty who said that sometimes when we act in a certain way, the feeling follows. Mm-hmm. Right? We may not feel love for somebody or for for God, but when we act in actions of love, the love grows. The love follows. Right? And I think that's the same thing with trust. There are times when we have to express trust even though we may not feel it at that moment and we see that over and over again in the psalms so i i do think those these hymns of praise like psalm nine psalm eight sorry um are important uh because they they show us they remind us of who god is even when we don't in the moment fully believe it wow that's that's yeah um i think part of our discomfort with lament to go back to your First point, yeah, uh, has to do with our tradition as Seventh Day Adventists. Hmm. We're we're unique in that way, because if uh, you follow if you follow the liturgical calendar, like a lot of our, our mainline Protestant denominations, you're going to see that their worship experiences uh, in their services are much more balanced in a way that really reflects the Psalms. And I know that sounds foreign, but just think about it with me for a second. Um, before Easter, you have Lent. Mm-hmm. Before Epiphany, you have Advent. Mm-hmm. And the theological me- the theological basis for that is that the church very early understand- understood that before feasting, you must fast. Mm-hmm. And so the, the whole liturgical calendar is, cr- is set up in a way mm-hmm. where if you think just about how long Lent is versus how long um, Easter is, or how long the Advent season is where you're, it's the season of waiting desperately for the birth of the Messiah, and then uh, actual uh, epiphany, how long that lasts, you'll see that the times that the church is either waiting or fasting are much longer mm. than the times in which the church is feasting or celebrating. Wow. And so I think to other faith traditions that are more, uh, some of our, for example, mainline Protestant uh, brothers and sisters out there, this idea of mixing lament and praise doesn't seem as foreign as it does to us because we don't follow a liturgical calendar. I love how in those calendars, um, the the lament is not always just like deep mourning. Because for me, um, a lot of times when I think of lament, I think of a, almost like a mono mm-hmm. uh, monochromatic version mm-hmm. of lament. Like it always has to be this. Mm-hmm. But what you're talking about that even the anticipate the anticipatory waiting for something to be fulfilled and not knowing exactly when it's going to be fulfilled, that that is an expression of loss and lament. And that's the, that's the loss that the, the people of God experienced throughout the Old Testament, right? How much longer, Lord, right? Over and over again, waiting for deliverance. Like, and, and the period of deliverance and the, celebra- the celebration of deliverance is time-wise, as you pointed out, much shorter right. than the waiting right. for deliverance. 
And yet that's the reality, right? That's right. the reality that we live in until we get to heaven, right? right? Until Jesus returns again. I'm, there's far more periods of waiting than part periods of resolution. Mm-hmm. And so, man, that is powerful. I didn't realize that about those who follow the liturgical yeah. calendar. No, that's powerful. Um, I think it, it I think links like better with how, and you're saying, Lament itself, grief isn't monochromatic, and I think you've seen this, and this seems almost second nature to, to any of us who has either experienced grief, grief or been in close contact with grief. Mm-hmm. Uh, at one moment, you're laughing and everything seems fine, and then 30 seconds later, you're, you're devastated again. And I think that has to do with uh, the fact that grief, just like joy, is nuanced. Mm-hmm. And the and just and because the Psalms are attempting to capture the whole of human experience, back to your first point, they're going to be nuanced. It's not going to mm. be as clear cut as as Proverbs. So I think that's that's something that uh, some other faith traditions have understood better than we have. Mm. Uh, I think the other the other challenge is often Christianity has become really triumphalistic. Hmm. And I am thrilled that hmm. in Jesus, the big existential question about the future is answered. Hmm. In Jesus, there is salvation. In Jesus, you look ahead uh, with confidence to the future. Happy about that. Hmm. But the reality is we're not living in that hmm. period where all these things yeah. have come to pass. And so... Uh, many, many, many theologians, uh, and we've talked about him uh, here, Rudolf Otto, has coined the term of this idea of liminal spaces, these in-between spaces mm-hmm. that we live in. Um, and I think often our theology becomes trium- triumphalistic, mm-hmm. and it lacks practicality. Mm-hmm. So my believing in Jesus and in the beauty of the cross and the resurrection, by the way, in order for, be, for there to be an empty tomb, there needs to be a cross. Mm-hmm. In Jesus, we have uh, the capacity for unmitigated and unbridled joy. However, the practical reality is that we are still in a space of, as you said, I I would call it lament because it is a space of waiting. And when your theology becomes too triumphalistic, it ceases to have the capacity to comfort those Mm. who who are experiencing lament. And I think what, I think we prioritize orthodoxy. Mm. Um, I I wish uh, that as, uh, Browning, Don Browning uh, puts it, I wish that instead of prioritizing orthodoxy, the Christian church would have uh, started to prioritize the practicality of our beliefs. In other words, how useful are these beliefs at uh, erupting into the real lives of people who are suffering and offering the comfort, not in a triumphalistic way, but in a way that, that shows empathy. Yeah. Yeah, I remember... I don't know when it was, but several um, sessions ago, you introduced me to the term orthopraxy, mm-hmm. right? Um, that a lot of times we, we focus on having the right doctrines, but we don't always focus on the <coughs> making sure that we have the right practices. Mm-hmm. <coughs> and the right practices are not just are following these, these principles that are followed in scripture of how we worship God and how we... That's, that's really powerful because... The rhythm of how we live our lives, the habits and mm. rhythms of how we live our lives, um, individually and also corporately, mm-hmm. have such an impact on um, how we are able to experience loss and challenges and difficulties and waiting. They build resilience, mm-hmm. right? And I do think that within the Seventh Day Adventist um, community, we have neglected the whole communal um to a certain extent the communal intentional communal flow Mm. of our our church we have a communal communal we do have communal habits Mm -hmm. right 
um, gathering on, on Sabbath morning for worship, having Sabbath school. Like we have these communal habits, but I wonder, um, they're not always attached to intentional flows of scripture, mm -hmm. which is something that the, those who follow the liturgical calendar, like you said, that's one of the advantages mm -hmm. they have over us because what they are following is the flow of scripture. Correct. And because they are able to do that and journey through that as a community, there is a powerful intentionality that covers mm. the or encompasses all of the human experience mm. and brings a little bit more balance to their Christian mm. experience than we do. Um, for us, it really, if if a church is intentional at all, it often just depends on the the sermonic selections mm -hmm. of the of the pastor, right? And that sort of becomes the rhythm, and. Um, gratefully for Randy, he he does seem to intentionally follow those flows. Like that's why he every every Advent season he has an Advent series. Mm -hmm. Every every Easter he focuses. On, so he does follow these, and then we have the Memorial Sabbath, and we have our uh, prayer conference, and we have these things that we have intentionally placed to try to create that flow. Um, but that's not the case in every Adventist mm. um, community. Um, because, I mean, I know as a young pastor, I wasn't thinking that right. that way. And having some kind of framework to follow might have been a lot more helpful for me and also for my congregation because it would have produced a lot more balance mm. in the ways that I preached. That's, oof, that is, that'll preach, Joey. Um, that'll preach. Which is why sometimes, and I, as a young pastor, I was sold out on grace, sold out on the gospel, and I love the gospel, and I love grace, but I didn't really understand how that functioned within a broader picture of the overall narrative of God and his people. Hmm. And so we can say on Resurrection Sabbath, the sun has risen. Mm. He is risen indeed. Mm. Amen. But that doesn't mean anything if we don't go through the process of waiting. Mm. If you don't have Saturday, that silent, silent Saturday. Mm. Which is why not just other mainline Protestant churches, but the Catholic Church, if you've ever been to Mass, you'll have a reading from the Old Testament. Mm. You'll have a reading from the Gospel. And then you have a reading from usually the Pauline corpus. And the intent behind that is to try to weave together all this, the whole of the story, mm. so that you don't just say, oh, God reigns, and you fail to realize that there is an actual threat out there, an existential threat to humanity that God now has to have victory over. Mm. It matters not to say God reigns if you fail to recognize how perilous the situation of humanity is. Mm -hmm. it, it is almost ludicrous to say the sun has risen, he has risen indeed, unless you realize mm -hmm. how perilous for a moment the existence of the whole cosmos heads by a thread. Mm -hmm. It hangs by a thread and in Christ we we were able to we as as a human family are able to achieve victory but i think sometimes uh in in our attempt to be gospel oriented mm. and to be gospel centered and to be grace uh fixated or fixated on grace i should say we've <laughs> We've, we've developed a theology that is not grace-oriented or fixed on grace. It's triumphalistic. And mm. I think that's, for, for those of us that are more progressive, we, we often talk about the ills that afflict our brethren within Adventism that are uh, in more conservative uh, situations. But for, for those of us that would consider ourselves a bit more progressive, I think that's the danger. I think mm -hmm. the danger is always to make our theology triumphalistic mm -hmm. uh, because we say, hey, we're, we're grace-oriented and we're about joy and we're about what Jesus has done. Yeah. I mean, while it's important 
to focus on Resurrection Day, it, it loses some of its meaning if we don't always also focus on Good Friday, mm-hmm. right? Which always was an interesting name for a day that, mm. <laughs> that involved so much loss. But it is true. It is a Good Friday because that's when Jesus died for our sins. Mm-hmm. But it was also the, one of the darkest moments in human history, right? So that, that, that balance of having and one day of death, one day of silence, and one day of resurrection, right? That does seem to be more of the balance of, of Scripture where it's two-thirds are waiting and one day you, you have that right. celebration. And that is the only way in which the celebration has meaning. Mm. If, if everything has always been good, then there's no need to celebrate. Mm. If you've never experienced hunger, and I need to be very careful because I was talking about, I was thinking about this as, as we prepared, and I said, I don't want to get into the space like one of my favorite writers, John Hick does, where he says, well, uh, suffering is ontologically necessary Mm. that means you need suffering but in this world in which we live you don't get to appreciate good food if you haven't been hungry Mm. and that's i think why uh what um what psalm 8 says uh, is is so powerful he says lord uh, our lord and uh how majestic is your name in all the earth. Mm. You have set your glory above the heaven through the praise of children and infants. You have established a stronghold against your enemy. Notice that there's no need for the stronghold in which you are secure, in which you say God reigns, Mm. unless you have the presence of a real threat. And so we need to recognize the reality of that threat. And Mm. we don't... We dare not be afraid of the threat. We dare not say that uh, the threat uh, is uh, presents us with uh, the capacity to uh, fall as long as we are in Christ. But the threat exists. That's why we get to say God reigns. Yeah. And part of the, and I, I don't know, part of the theology of, of the Book of Psalms, and this is alluded to in the lesson as well in the beginning, seems to be about how everything depends completely on God, mm-hmm. right? That God is sovereign, almost Calvinistic, mm-hmm. right? In that, and, and if you read Psalm chapter 8, that, that seems to be the message of Psalm 8, where it's saying, um, verse 3, when I consider the heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set into place, what are mere mortals that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? It's like humans are down here. Mm-hmm. God, you're way up here. Why do you even care about us, right? And yet the rationale for him caring about us is that you have made them a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned them with glory and honor. You've made them rulers over the works of your hands. So that the lesson makes the point that that the value of humans comes from the fact that God made us valuable, mm-hmm. right? He crowned us with glory and he made us rulers over his creation. So our value comes from those two things. And that does seem to be a common theme throughout the book of Psalms, like that our value comes from God. But don't humans also have intrinsic value as living human beings? Um, this is the part of the Psalms that I s- sort of struggle with a little bit because, because as we talk about <clears throat> a, 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 you know, the, the reality of human experience and how these moments of praises are necessary for us, I wonder if because the, the psalmists are going through such difficult times, they sort of need a locus of value outside of themselves to <clears throat> to try to get encouragement from that no matter what i'm going through because my value is rests in christ or rests in god that means that that my value remains um stable even though mm. i'm going through suffering and which is why they're approaching things mm. this way but at the same time i struggle is there value is there intrinsic mm. value in humans or is our value is our intrinsic value from God, mm. like how how does that work? How do we balance the the theology of of the Psalms with the 
yeah. the, the belief that there is some intrinsic value in humans? That's a great question. And um, it's, it's one that hopefully you'll get to answer. <laughs> uh, no, I, I think, so I think it's, I think it's a, a confusion maybe of terms mm. between our mind and the mind of the author. So I think that for the author, these questions of individual value, mm -hmm. individuality, humanity those aren't present mm. the the author mm. doesn't have a framework mm. uh, to consider these ideas uh, the individualization individualization of, of human beings like we do here in the West that's something that um, we we owe to Plato and I think it's a great thing that the, that the Greeks gave us so I think a better way to ask the question maybe is not do we have a locus of value outside of ourselves? Mm. Because I think you and I agree that human beings possess intrinsic value. There mm. is something innate within us uh, that has value. Mm. Um, I think the question is less about value than and more about meaning. Mm. Is there mean, it, do we possess mm. meaning? And by meaning, I mean uh, the capacity to understand uh, the goings and comings of, of the world. Mm -hmm. And can we extract meaning uh, from those comings and goings in it of ourselves? Or do we need to put place the locus of meaning outside of ourselves? Mm -hmm. And that isn't just a question that the psalmist is going to argue. That is the great debate of our time mm -hmm. between uh, those people who have a theistic understanding of the universe and those who have an atheistic understanding of the universe. Notice that both would argue. Hmm. I mean, unless, unless you're extremely nihilistic, both would argue that uh, meaning itself, that value itself, pardon, is found, is inherent to uh, human beings. Mm -hmm. The question isn't then, do we have meaning or don't we have meaning? The question is, I'm sorry, the question isn't, do we have value or don't we have value? Mm. The question is, is meaning located within us mm. and our capacity to find meaning as we interact with the world? Or do we have to place meaning outside of us in, in some supreme being? Mm. That's so powerful. I mean, so much great there. I, first, this the idea that the psalmists aren't, trying to answer the same questions that we're asking, mm -hmm. right? Or that I'm asking um, because they don't have a conceptual framework that we do in the 21st century, right? They don't, they, they don't think in, in these individualistic terms. And because of that, they're not to try to read into and get an answer from that from the Psalms is just not, not good um, hermeneutics, right? Because it's, um, it's not it's it's not something that they're trying to communicate they're trying to communicate something more um in the realm of meaning that god is um that that god is the source of our meaning right and so that's that's really powerful because there are other portions of scripture outside of the psalms definitely more in the new testament as well but even in the old testament that s seems to indicate that there is value and that value intrinsic mm -hmm. in humans because like for example we're created in god's mm -hmm. image right and so because i mean that is an that is a value that god mm -hmm. that imparts to us but it's one that he creates within, within us, us right and so that in itself has value and um and in the new testament um we're told to see even those who we would consider outside of the community of God as children of mm. God, right? That there is, there is no slave, there is no free, there, that there, we all have the same value. So there, there does seem to be a sense of intrinsic value throughout Scripture, right? right? Yeah. And so perhaps the psalmist is trying to answer a different question. But you, I think, are, are still on a track that is really helpful to understand this idea of God reigning and that track has to do with okay so me so if we choose to have uh, if we choose to have the locus of meaning placed in God mm. uh, then 
God becomes that interpretive tool that we use to look through um, any experience, right? So, so in suffering, uh, in joy, in uh, pain, in agony, in, in the whole gamut of human emotions, we look at that through, by saying, okay, suffering in, is, in it of itself mm. is, does, has no meaning, and we can't, uh, that's where I stop short of, of, being, of being a Hickian. <laughs> suffering in it of itself has no meaning. Mm. But it is our capacity mm. to find meaning because we are looking at, uh, the, at this experience of suffering mm. through the reality of the cross and the empty tomb. Our capacity to find meaning in suffering redefines suffering as something else. Mm. And so suffering, when, when viewed yeah. through the lens of the cross, ceases to be suffering and becomes a tool for spiritual development and spiritual actualization. So yeah. we don't call it suffering anymore. It's a tool. Now, if we cannot do that, and I think that's the difference. We're back to meaning, right? That's the difference between the theistic and the non-theistic way of looking at the world. From a theistic standpoint, mm. Suffering has meaning because we're looking, not intrinsically, but we're looking at the experience of suffering from the lens of the victory that Christ has over suffering. Yes. And so then we can say this experience is one of identification with, with Christ, and as such, it is a tool for my spiritual growth and maturation. Wow. So it's not suffering. Yeah. If you are an atheist... You're going to see suffering, and you just see suffering. You don't have that lens that gives suffering another uh, dimension, and so suffering remains completely, completely meaningless. And I think that's that's the that's the nuance. That's the little shift, and that's why these people can say, "God reigns," even in spite of all of the evidence that continues to mount around us that says, "No, no, no, this world is chaotic." Wow, that's. So that's such an important distinction to make that suffering itself is not intrinsically good, mm -hmm. right? That suffering, no matter what the circumstances is always good. What we're saying is that suffering good can come from mm -hmm. suffering, especially if you're coming in with this model and framework of Christ, mm -hmm. right? That Christ is, is using the suffering to produce good mm -hmm. within us. That can happen. But it doesn't make the suffering itself right. good. It doesn't baptize the suffering mm -hmm. with meaning, but yeah. it allows us to extrapolate meaning from suffering mm -hmm. because uh, you're superimposing Christ to that experience of mm -hmm. suffering. And I think that's the that's the nuance that we need to keep pointing to. And it's not a new nuance. It's not something that is unique. Um, not to get too Paulina on this point. But, you know, when Paul talks about the law, and when and the lesson talked a little bit about covenant, mm -hmm. and when Paul talks about the law, and, and, and to use another term for that, the Mosaic covenant, uh, or choose ye, or, or, the, or the Levitical law, or, or the law in Deuteronomy, where there's two paths, one leads to death, one leads to life, and if you do A, B, and C, it's death. Paul talks about all of those things, and he recognizes that none of these are part of God's initial plan. Hmm. To have to say, hey, don't go out and commit adultery or do not covet. That wasn't to even to mouth those words wasn't part of God's initial plan. But that whole experience, right, uh, with laws that or with laws or a covenant that pushes us to act in a certain way and protects us and also provides certain punishments when we deviate, that is, uh, is intended to, as Paul says, to be our teacher, to be mm. our tutor. Yeah. In the same way, I think, yeah. suffering, when seen, through, and when seen through the lens of Christ, which is what Paul is doing, Paul is uh, using a hermeneutic that prioritizes Jesus, when seen through the, through the lens of Christ, we can say, hmm, perhaps suffering is a tutor. And in, in, mm. in that regard, it ceases to be suffering and it becomes something, something else, something beautiful. And we've talked about this as, uh, last week, so I'm not going to belabor that point. Yeah, no, no I, I think that's, that's very powerful. And 
as you pointed out, the lesson does seem to end with this idea of covenant and testimonies that, mm-hmm. that because God has made a covenant and he is faithful, that is, that is mm-hmm. the message of the book of Psalms. Like even when it doesn't seem like God is being faithful, we know that God is faithful Correct. to his covenant. And because his covenant, he's, he is a faith, he's faithful to his covenant. His testimonies are sure mm-hmm. his law, his, his guidance, all of these things are dependable. Mm-hmm. Um, even when at times they don't seem to mm-hmm. be dependable. Like both of those realities are present and right. we're going to find that throughout the book of Psalms. But the importance of being able to rely on that does give us assurance and does help us to produce meaning mm-hmm. out of suffering. And that's so powerful because even in, even in um, outside of the Christian realm, people have shown that when you're going through suffering, how you approach the suffering and the meaning you create from suffering does impact the way mm-hmm. that the, the resilience that a person has to get through it. Mm-hmm. Like when we see suffering as having no meaning and suffering as being endless and having no hope, that's what causes people to give up, right? right? But when we know that there is, there is, a, that there is a silver lining at the mm-hmm. end of this dark cloud, when we know that the sun is going to come up tomorrow, like when we know these things and we know that God is still with us through those times, it gives us tremendous resilience to get through. Mm-hmm. And that's not just based on wishful thinking, because as a psalmist, like last week's psalm talked about is you have been faithful in the past to my ancestors and also to us. So it's based on a confidence in who God, we know God to be mm-hmm. from our forefathers or, or our ancestors um, experience with God and also our own experience with God. And we rely on that during the times of trouble. And doesn't that force you then to interpret scripture in a different way? Mm-hmm. So think about this. As the Psalms are being read in Israel, the majority of Israel's reality and, and religious praxis um, with the Psalms is post uh, post so post 950 BC. Mm. Okay, so the majority of that of of their experience with this book has been as either uh, captives or uh, people without a land or people that are under the boot of some foreign power. Now, if you take the covenant to mean if you are, Exodus 19, right? If you do these things, I will be your God, you will be my people. Mm-hmm. And your reality is that you don't have a land and you don't have uh, security and safety and joy and anything else. Then the implication by de facto is, well, I didn't keep the covenant. I am not God's person. Yeah. I think this whole week, this whole past week, um, when we were dealing with our Unbelievable series, uh, there was, uh, I think, a really, really, Jeffrey uh, did a really good presentation on reminding us that the covenant, there is a covenant that predates the Mosaic Covenant, which is the Abrahamic Covenant, mm-hmm. right? You will be a great nation. And uh, how that in, uh, in the reality of Christ applies to every single human being out there. The family of God is immense. And so you can, uh, these people can go back to that. Now, they couldn't see Jesus at this point. Um, I would have loved Jeffrey to remind us that even before the Abrahamic covenant, mm. there is still uh, a covenant that predates that, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the Noahic covenant. Mm-hmm. And I think that, but you need to look uh, back. Uh, you need to allow Jesus to be your interpretive tool that uh, where you look back at history. But you also, when talking about the covenant, how God relates to us in a fallen world, you need to use Noah to, to paint the, the story forward. And so you, you use Jesus to look back, you, you, look, you, you use Noah to look forward. Mm. And the primary point of the Noahic covenant, right, is that God has decided unilaterally, mm. the God of the Old Testament, the one that we're scared of, that God has decided unilaterally that he is no longer going to be at war with humanity. Mm. And everything that follows, uh, Abraham, Sinai, uh, the prophets, and Jesus, is God's ultimate attempt to be, t- be true to his promises that, says, that say, we are no longer at war. Mm. Um, I, will sh- I will hang up 
which is what the promise to know is i will hang up my my arrow and my bow my weapons of war will be hung up on the sky because i'm i'm not going to go to war with you wow and so i think that reality right that both in jesus we can we can say god reigns because uh, there is an empty tomb. And in that God of the Old Testament, we, we can say we can be at peace because regardless of what is happening and how much we are suffering, God and I are no longer at war. Wow. And that powerful truth is woven throughout the Psalms mm. that God is faithful. Mm -hmm. He is a faithful God. He is a righteous judge. Mm. He, is, he is the sovereign of the universe, but also that sovereign um has made promises to humans that he keeps mm -hmm. even when humans break their mm -hmm. covenant. God will be faithful to his. Mm -hmm. And that's what gives us encouragement through difficult times. Oh, Joey, and that, I think, because the lesson talked a little bit about judgment, yeah. that, that gives us a whole new vista when it comes to judgment. Yeah. The idea that the judge is faithful mm -hmm. and he's not at war with us anymore. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, we are over time, Joe. We pray. Uh, we are just thankful that you have watched us. Uh, there's so much to, to converse. I really enjoyed our time together. Joey, pray us. Pray us out. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. Mm. Lord, we echo these words of the psalmist. We echo them in good times and in difficult times when things the road is smooth and easy and the the, the wind is at our back mm. and when the road is treacherous snow filled and we're walking uphill both ways mm. with wind blowing at our face even in those times we stand with the psalmist to say god you have been faithful so we trust that you are faithful mm. now lord for all of our listeners who are in whatever stages of their lives whether they're walking in good times or bad Lord, we, we depend on your faithfulness to get us through, is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen and amen.